tongue does not speak to men but to God. For no one understands, uh, uh, for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who speaks or one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets. So that, what is that, Cliff? Purpose clause. So that the church may receive edifying. All right, well, what does it look like to be spiritual? And Paul uh, basically jumps into chapter number 14 and, and, and continues this subject, but he's using a couple of things in order to bounce ideas off of, kind of as a backboard. Let me say it like this. Paul uses these revelatory gifts of prophecy and tongues and interpretation as the backboard off of which he banks his shot in the bucket as he begins to talk about spirituality. Now look, I, I don't want to be perceived as somebody who's going after a certain brand of, 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 of Christian who seems to hold these three things as their core values and is at the center of their belief system. That's not what I want to do. I, I, I don't want to make it look like I'm setting up a straw man here in order to chop him down. So let's look at this in a broader context. And rather than just taking a blind swing at some of these charismatic gifts, let's again couch it in broader terms. So what is it that Paul says about spirituality? What does it mean to be spiritual? I think verses 1 through 5, he highlights this. He says, being spiritual requires effort. As a matter of fact, you may want to say it like this. Being spiritual requires hard work. Hey, part of the problem I think at, in Corinth and part of the problem that we have today with folks who seem to overemphasize certain aspects that ought not be overemphasized is this. Let's just be honest. They're lazy believers. You can't be a spiritual person and be lazy. I think the fact that Paul uses in this one section 21 imperative verbs underlines that. 21 imperatives. Now you know what an imperative is. An imperative is a command. In Bible interpretation, an imperative verb takes top priority in our understanding of the text. And in this chapter, in these verses that we're going to look at today, 21 commands. This is what he's telling folk to do. Do this, don't do this, do this, don't do that. So if you're going to be spiritual, it's going to require some hard work. There is no such thing as a lazy spiritual person. That's an oxymoron. Hey, if you're going to walk with the Lord and you're going to be spiritual, it's going to require some effort on our part. Now, notice how this comes through in these verses. Paul tells us that being spiritual requires effort. And here's the first thing he says. He says that love is to be doggedly pursued. Doggedly pursued. Check out imperative verb number one in verse number one. Here's what he says. He says, pursue love. Now, why do I say it's to be doggedly pursued? Because that's how this word was used, Jerry. This word was used in this time as... Uh, 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 it was used for dogs who were hot on the trail of their game. I mean, they were on the hills. They were running as fast as they could behind a deer, behind a rabbit, behind a fox. That's the word picture that Paul gives us here, that we are to doggedly pursue love. And we already know from chapter number 14 that Paul says that love is the ultimate sign of Christianity and spirituality, not gifts. So again, Paul's focusing these folk and say, you are to chase it because this type of love is not something you fall into. You know what I mean? I mean, it's not like Tina Turner says, just a second-hand emotion. This love is something that takes time. This love is something that takes effort because this type of love means that you are doggedly pursuing love for someone who may not be lovely. And that's tough. 
But Paul says, you got to stay on the trail of it. Don't let it throw you off. You know, here's what good track dogs do, Jerry. You know better than anybody. A good track dog that's hot on the trail of something, if a rabbit takes a hard turn and throws them off, they'll go back to where they lost the scent, even if it's way on back somewhere, and they'll pick it up and they'll trail it out again. And that's a picture of how you and I are to pursue love. Hey, if, if we've been thrown off of the track of love, here's what you do. You go back to where you lost it and track it out again. And you stay on the set and you stay on the track and you doggedly pursue love because without love, there's no spirituality. So notice what Paul says. He says being spiritual requires effort. That means love is to be doggedly pursued. But number two, Paul tells us in this verse also that expressions of gifts are to be properly prioritized. Now look what he says. Pursue love. There's our first uh, verb. Then he says, yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Now, I don't think Paul is saying this. Let's exclude this right off the bat. He's not saying that you ought to be envious of somebody else's spiritual gift that you don't have and you want to want it. That's not the way it works. Because in chapter 12, Paul has already established the fact that the Spirit of God gives us gifts as He wills. Not as we will, but as He will. Now, just about everybody wishes they had another gift. I don't know anybody that doesn't look across the fence and see greener pasture. But bottom line, God has sovereignly, based on His knowledge, given you the gift by which you can best serve His people and glorify Him in His kingdom. So just put that out of your mind. He's not saying that you ought to look at somebody else and earnestly desire that you have that. Here's what I think Paul is saying. Paul's saying, you are focusing on one of the gifts that are lesser. And you ought to be focusing on the greater gifts. So I think he's saying this. You have got a greater gift than tongues or interpretation of tongues and focus on it. By the way, this can be substantiated. The passage that Trey read this morning talks about our... Here's the way you can look at spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts basically have three classes. One of them is what I call the trunk gifts in Romans chapter 12. You only have one of those. That's the tree trunk. But there's also a class of gift known as ministry gifts. Those are the branches off of that trunk. And then there's what the Bible refers to as manifestation gifts. Those are the leaves on the end of the branches. Well, you see, the Corinthians were focusing on the leaf and not on the trunk. So Paul says, reprioritize and you focus on the trunk. You focus on the greater gifts. And by the way, you may have heard this said before. I may even be guilty of saying it. That... No gifts are more important than the others, but that's not true. They are. Paul says so right here, does he not? I mean, notice what he says. He he says it in plain Greek right here in verse number 5. I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy, because greater... Did you see that? So if, if one is greater, what does it mean the other is? Lesser. So here's the problem with some of the expressions of these charismatic revelatory gifts. People are majoring on a minor. And if we would prioritize our gifts, then I think Paul says we would go a long way down the road far as boosting our spirituality and our walk with Christ. So notice what he says. He gives us two reasons why it is that the expressions of gifts are to be properly prioritized. Number one, because prophecy develops other people. Now... Check out what he says in verse number 4. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, let me, let me do a little groundwork here because uh, check out what Paul says. J- just turn back with me to chapter uh, number, number 13. In these last few verses, here's what he says. He says, love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it'll be done away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Now, let me use a great big word on you because this is big in theological circles. 
There is what's known the doctrine of cessationalism. It, and the root word is to cease. You see what Paul said? To cease. So the big question is, have some of these gifts ceased? Have they gone out of existence? Are they extinct? And it depends on how you interpret what Paul said there when that which is perfect comes. Now here's what Paul seems to be saying to us. These gifts as defined in Romans chapter 12 are what's known as revelatory gifts. Remember in Corinth they did not have a New Testament, did they? They did not. So how did people get the Word? By those who had spiritual gifts who could take the Old Testament, bring it in principle form, and edify the church uh, 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 with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But now, Paul says when that which is perfect comes. A lot of folk think that that which is perfect is the Bible. You have in your hand, if, you've, if you're holding this in your hand, you have the complete revelation of God. Now, if... If, if, if prophecy as defined here is a revelatory gift, if tongues is a revelatory gift, then watch me. Look at my face. It's gone. If it wasn't, that means revelation would still be coming. That means your Bible would be getting bigger. And it's not. This is God's final word for His people. It is. So I don't need somebody to come prophesy and tell me something that I don't know because this is my authority in life. This is the infallible, spirit-inspired, authoritative Word of God. It's Alpha and Omega. Revelation is closed. So if it's a revelatory gift, gone. And here's what Paul seems to be saying. Write this formula down on, your piece of, on a piece of paper. Tongues plus interpretation equal prophecy. So he seems to be saying to those Corinthians, hey, if, if, if you've got a one-step process, why do you want to make it a two-step process? So just X out the first part and let somebody speak God's Word. Because now prophecy develops in the New Testament. Tongues not so much, prophecy does. We're going to define prophecy in our terms today a little bit later. But notice what Paul says. He says, this is why spiritual gifts are to be prioritized. Number one, because prophecy develops other people. Hey, that's the purpose of your spiritual gift. Did you know that? It's given for you to develop other people. It's not given for you. Now notice why, what he says about tongues. He says, prophecy develops other people, but tongues defy the basic purpose of gifts. Now, listen to me. I told you, Paul's using tongues as the backboard against which he banks his shot. You come to some conclusions on your own about what Paul is really saying about it as we walk through this. Because here he takes it, man, he, he fires a warning shot right across the bow of the charismatic expression of some of these gifts. Look what he says in, in verse number... Uh, let me get back to chapter number 14. In verse number 4 he says, One who speaks in tongues edifies himself. Now look in chapter number 12 when he was talking about the gifts in verse number 7. Each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? For the common good. But what does tongues do? It edifies whoever's jibber-jabbering, right? So do you see how that expression of the gifts is com in complete contradiction to the overarching purpose of spiritual gifts as a whole? So Paul's saying, hey, let's stop and think about this thing. If you're going to be spiritual, he says, it requires some effort. Now, notice the second paragraph as we run through this thing. What does it mean to be spiritual? Well, being spiritual requires effort. But number two, being spiritual means seeking the church's edification. That's what it means. Now look here. We've got a lot of cultural Christians and Bonifay that think they're spiritual and they have nothing to do with the church. But I'm telling you, God has saved you He's gifted you and He set you on a purpose and your purpose is 
to build up the body of Christ. And if you're disassociated from the body, you can't fulfill God's intention and God's purpose for your life. The word edification or to build up is used seven times in this passage. So is it important? You better believe it's important. So what does being spiritual mean? It means not seeking my own personal edification as tongue speaking does, but it's seeking the edification of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So check out what it is that he says here in this next paragraph. Let me read it for you. Uh, Chapter number 14, let's start in verse number 6. Now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or prophecy or of a teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also, you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. Now let's stop right there. Here's what Paul says. Being spiritual means seeking the church's edification. Now, notice again how he talks about prophecy here. So let me define prophecy very plainly for us in today's terms. Here's what prophecy means. Prophecy is the pointed preaching... The pointed preaching and relevant application of God's Word. And Paul is saying to us, that ought to be our focus. So he gives three things here that plain preaching will do to the church that tongues cannot do for the church. So here's what he says. You may want to write these down. There's three of them. He says that plain preaching profits the church. Look with me in verse number 6. Now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in a tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak? See what he's saying? So here's what Paul is saying. There is no substitute for the plain, intelligible communication of God's Word. There is no substitute. And he says it profits the church. Patrick and I were speaking this morning a little bit out in the foyer, and here's one of the conclusions that we made. It doesn't matter what a church is doing. If the Word of God isn't expositorily preached and pointedly applied to the life of a local church, it doesn't matter what else you're doing because it's all for nothing. It is only the Word of God that has the ability to cause a local church to profit by its hearing. So let me ask you, do you profit by sitting under the preaching of God's Word. Man, if you don't, we need to do a soul check because we're probably not spiritual. Because here's what Jesus said about the Word. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Huh? Here's what Paul said to those elders down in, down in uh, Ephesus. He said, now I commend you to God and the Word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I'm telling you, the Word of God is where it's at. And if we ever pull away from the Word of God, we might as well let cobwebs go across our front door. Doesn't matter what else is going on in here. Now, check out. What else Paul says the plain preaching of God's Word does? Verse number 6, he says it profits the church. But I think he also is saying in verse number 7 that it pleases the church. That it pleases the church because look at the analogy he uses. Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp. Have you ever noticed this? And by the way, the flute was used, I mean, uh, the harp was used in the Old Testament. You remember what David would do with the harp when Saul was in a rampage? He'd start playing that, that harp, right? And man, it makes such a, a pleasant noise until it would calm Saul right down. That's why I think Paul is saying that God's Word, the, the preaching of God's Word, not only profits the church, but it pleases the church. It's like music to our ears. It's like a flute. It's like a harp. It just seems to calm us down, put us in the zone. 
get us in a right perspective. It just has the ability to do something for us. I'm telling you, it does. It has that intrinsic ability that nothing else on this planet has. That's what God's Word does. Hey, do you know what you know what will please a believer more than anything? Feed them the Word. Man, I can tell you, you know, I, I've got to where I, I turn down more revivals than I take now. Because I'll just be honest with you. I don't have time to go and give five days of, of my life to some folk who don't even appreciate God's Word. And, and I'm not into it anymore. There's other more profitable things I can do with my preaching than going to some of these little dead churches that don't give a rat's rump about God's Word. And when I get done, they're not pleased. They're normally mad at me for preaching it. Hey, that's why I love Grace Church. Huh? I love Grace Church because you boys and girls know how to feed on God's Word. As a matter of fact, I look back there sometime and those Grace nursery workers have their hair all in a knot. Their clothes are being ripped off. And y'all are saying, preach, preach, preach. And they're saying, quit, quit, quit. <laughs> Not really, Sarah. They ain't nothing but angels back there. We want you to serve in Grace Kids. I'll just, I'll just be in funny. There's angels back there. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> what does the plain preaching do? Well, number one, it profits the church. Number two, it pleases the church. Number three, it prepares the church. Look what Paul says. Paul says right on down there in verse number eight, for if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will, here's our word, prepare himself for battle? And I, I don't know if you have discovered this or not, but you know the Christian life isn't a playground. <laughs> it is a battleground, Perry. <laughs> I just blew it for you, didn't I? Well, hey, get up and walk out. <laughs> yeah. It's a battleground. And let me tell you what God's Word is doing in your life right now. It's preparing you for the battle that you're going to face tomorrow. That's what God's Word does. And can I just be honest with you? The reason so many folk are losing the battle, I don't even have to finish my sentence, do I? The reason so many folk are losing the battle is because they're not prepared. And the reason they're not prepared is because they've got a whole lot of other things that rank higher in priority in their life than God's Word. And until that priority gets right, you're going to continue to take it on the chin. And you're going to continue to struggle. You're going to continue to lose the battle because the pointed preaching of God's Word is what prepares us for battle. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying if it's not a distinct sound, nobody's going to prepare themselves. Hey, never mind, i got to go. Check out. What does it mean to be spiritual? Being spiritual, number one, requires effort. Being spiritual, number two, means seeking the church's edification. Being spiritual, number three, means having a fruitful intellect. Having a fruitful mind. Look at the next paragraph. Verses 13 through 19. Therefore let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind, here it is, is unfruitful. Is unfruitful. So, here's what Paul is saying is taking place. And by the way, this absolutely contradicts biblical revelation. Just contradicts it. Paul is saying, if you don't know what you are saying, how do you grow from it when God works through it? You see, here's what God wants you to know. He wants you to know who He is, and He wants you to know what He's doing. And if you don't know either of those because your mind is not engaged, then friend, there's no way you can be spiritual and there's no way you can grow to maturity because you don't profit from knowing who God is or what God's done because your mind was disengaged. Now listen, you don't, you don't have to speak in a tongue to have your mind disengaged. 
There's a lot of folk who come to church and I, I think when they walk in the door, they turn their mind off. Bump. But here's God's command for us. If you're going to be spiritual, you've got to have a fruitful intellect and a fruitful mind. So let me just ask you a question. Does your thought life lead you to worship God? Or does it lead you away from Him? I mean, do some of the thoughts that you think when you're encountering truth in Scripture, does it just cause you to want to love Jesus more? Does it reveal to you who He is and make you want to walk more closely with Him? You see, that's a fruitful man. That's why Jesus said, You are to love me with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. Listen to me. We are commanded to love Him with our mind, with our mind, with our mind. And there's so many lazy folk who don't want to have their mind engaged today in the most complex but yet simple subject that there ever has been known to man, and that is God's Word. Engage your mind. God made you an intellectual person. He's given us a brain that has the capacity to do what most computers can't do. And yet we seem to rival in our ignorance. Well, I don't know a whole lot about that, but this is what I know. Well, by golly, know something about it. A spiritual person has a fruitful intellect. And their mind leads them to worship God because it's leading them down the road toward truth in a greater pursuit every day. Check out number next as I'm flying through this stuff. Good thing we're having grace group, right? What does it mean to be spiritual? Let me recap. Being spiritual requires effort. Being spiritual means seeking the church's edification. Being spiritual means having a fruitful intellect. And then number four, being spiritual means being an adult. An adult. Let me be honest with you. When Grace Church was in its fledgling years, some of y'all remember that, we had more students than anything, more BCF students. We probably had, what, 30, 35 BCF students, Jerry? And John Wilson and I, Dr. John and I, were meeting once a week with a bunch of, a bunch of students that said they were called to preach and, 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 and to be ministers and were at BCF. John and I would get up. Jerry, you were there sometimes. We'd get up sometime 5.30. Well, no more than that, so I'd drive Dothan. I'd, I'd get up 5 o'clock and drive, and we'd have breakfast with a bunch of them in, uh, in Graceville. We were faithful to do that. John Wilson and I did that for years, semesters. And can I be honest with you? It about killed John Wilson. You know why? Because all of them but about two of them are lost off somewhere today off in the weeds, not even pursuing a walk with Jesus. And here's what John was saying. John said, am, am I just that bad of a disciple maker? I mean, what's going on? Why are all these people whom I have poured my life in, why are they being lost in the weeds and chasing after heresies and going off into cult religions? Why are they doing that? And here was our conclusion. We were trying to make spiritual men out of boys. And watch me. You can't be spiritual until you first grow up. If you're not a, a responsible, mature person, you can almost forget being spiritual. There are some things that just come with being an adult. Now, I'm not talking about works theology here. I'm just talking about being an adult. And, you know, and by the way, employers are telling us that today. You know what the number... There was a day when, folk, when employers were looking for folk who had specialized training and a degree field and a skill set. You know what employers are looking for today? What are you looking for? Golly, somebody that'll just show up on time every day, right? And you can't get that. Why? Because we've got this band generation. You know what the bands are, huh? They're hung between boys and men. And they don't even know how to get to work every day on time, let alone do a good job and work hard. And that's what Paul's telling these Corinthians. If you're going to be spiritual, you've got to first be big boys and girls. Check out what he says, unless you think I'm just making this up. Look with me in verses 20 through 25. Brethren, 
Do not be children in your thinking. What did he just say? Grow up. Now let me show you, in case you missed it, check back again in chapter 13 and verse number 11. Remember, the backboard is tongues. You following me? The backboard is tongues. And here's what Paul says. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child. Hello? Think like a child. Reason like a child. When I became a man, look at there. Has nothing to do with spirituality. It just comes with the natural process of maturation. Him maturing. When I became a man, look what he said he did. I did away with childish things. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying grow up. Exactly right. He's saying you can't be spiritual and be a child. you got to grow up. Notice what all he does here is he talks about growing up and spirituality means being an adult. Look what he says in verse 23. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and the ungifted men or unbelievers, I think those are synonymous, enter, will they not say that you are mad? So here you go. A childish church, an unspiritual church, characteristic number one, people think you're crazy. Pretty plain English, isn't it? Paul said if, if, if somebody from Bonifay comes in, that don't, that they're unchurched, don't have church background, they come in and you're doing all this crazy stuff, what are they going to say? They're going to say, y'all are mad. And I don't know what it is that y'all have got, but whatever it is, I don't want any of it. They're going to say, you people are crazy. And it'll be all over the street. And the media down at Grace Church, crazy. Don't go up in there. Isn't that enough right there to detour us and cause us to want to grow up? I mean, isn't it? Now look at what else he says. He says, not only does, 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 uh, does, it, does it mean, well, folks say you're crazy, but now on the other hand, look what, a, look what a mature church does. One that pointedly and plainly preaches God's Word. That is prophesy. If all prophesy and an unbeliever or ungifted man enters, look here, he's given two hypothetical scenarios. I hear you are speaking in tongues and an unbeliever walks in. They're going to say y'all crazy and they're going to run as fast as they can. But now wait, if you're preaching God's word expositorily and pointedly applying it and that unbeliever walks in, you see that's what he's doing. Look what he says here in, in, in verse number 24. He is convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed so that or so he will fall on his face and worship God declaring that God is certainly among you. So here you go. What do you want your testimony to be in Bonifay? If you're a spiritually immature church that jibber jabbers all the time, folk are going to say you're crazy. But if you're, a, if you're a spiritual church that focuses and prioritizes the preaching of God's Word, here's what they're going to say. Three things. You may want to write them down. Number one, that church, a mature church, is a convicting church. Convicting church. Look what Paul says. That unbeliever is convicted by the preacher. By who? No, by all. He's talking about everybody that's gathered here. Because... Here we are, there's something about this environment and the preaching of the Word and the receiving of the Word, the gobbling up of the Word, the prioritization of the Word. There's something about that collective atmosphere that is convicting to folk who are lost as a small dog in high weeds when they walk in here. And you can't explain it. Hey, that's why it's so important. He says, convicted by all. Listen, there's only one preaching, but he's convicted by all. That's why it's so important when you come to Grace Church to at least act like you're interested in the preaching of God's Word. Put your phones down. Because I promise you, a lost man sitting there and, 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 and he's watching you on your phone while the preacher's up here pointedly preaching God's Word, he ain't going to be convicted at all. He's going to say, if this guy's a church member and he don't even care about it, why should I listen to it? So put it down. There's something about the environment created by the Word, preaching and receiving, that causes people to be convicted. 
So a mature church, number one, is a convicting church. But a mature church, number two, is a calling church. Look what Paul says. He's convicted by all. He's called into account by all. Called into account. A mature church, a spiritual church, is a church that calls. Hey, and it's not an outward call. It's not when somebody walks in, you're saying, Hey, you sinner, you better repent and believe or you're going to hell. That's not what he's talking about. Again, he's talking about the atmosphere here under the preaching of God's Word. And by in an atmosphere where the Word of God is received and prioritized and eagerly accepted and folk are, are taking in God's Word, there's something in that atmosphere that calls people into account and calls them to faith in Jesus Christ. Just all there is to it. That's what Paul says. Look at here. He's using tongues as the backboard. You want to be crazy or do you want to be convicting and calling? And then number three, what else is a mature church? A mature church is convincing. Convincing. Look at what Paul says in verse number 25. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. Man! Here's why I don't want to preach revivals anymore. Folk don't, believers don't even get this. Colin, they think when I'm preaching that I'm meddling in their life like I know something about them and I fashion this sermon just to air out their dirty laundry and they get mad at me. They don't even understand that the Spirit of God takes the Word of God supernaturally and somehow mysteriously you think, my Word, He's speaking directly to me. If that doesn't happen, it's not that the preaching wasn't good, it's that the Spirit of God wasn't here. Because that's what He does. That's what he does when God's word is preached. He discloses things. Man, I'm so grateful that, again, y'all don't blame me when the Spirit of God gets on you. Check out what else Paul says. The secrets of his hearts are disclosed, so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring God is certainly among... What was he convinced of? Here's what we want folk to say when they leave Grace Church. I, I, don't, I don't care if folk come in here and they say, man, y'all got the greatest worship band. That was such a good worship set they did today. Doesn't mean that much to me. I don't even want folk to come in here and say, man, that was a tremendous sermon. I appreciate that sermon. You know what I want folk to leave here saying? I want them to leave here saying, God was in this place. And you see, that's the atmosphere that a mature spiritual church creates. It creates an environment where the Spirit of God is at home. For where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, right? It creates an environment where He is at home and where He is free to take God's Word and disclose the secrets of people's hearts where He takes this environment and He calls people to Himself, where He takes this environment and He convicts people of, his sin, of their sin, that's what I want. Hey, if God's not here when we meet, then we'd just well be running beagles today, Jerry. Huh? <laughs> I mean, isn't that what the church... Uh, Paul's done told these Corinthians, do you not know that you are His temple? And the Spirit of God dwells within you. The greatest commodity we have is not our worship. It's not our preaching. It's not our fellowship. It's not our community. The greatest and most precious asset we have is the presence of God. And Paul says that's what a mature church does. It's conducive for God's Spirit being here and having liberty and freedom to work. i got to hurry. You know that. Notice what else he says. Being spiritual, what does it mean? Being spiritual requires effort. Being spiritual means seeking the church's edification. Being spiritual means having a fruitful mind. Being spiritual means being an adult. Being spiritual means confusion is eliminated. Eliminated. Look at verses 26 through 33. That's what Paul says. Verse number 26, Let all things be done for edification. If one speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or three at the most, each in turn, and one must interpret. 
Uh, verse 29, let two or three prophets speak, let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must be kept silent. Man, this has the ability of being a Chinese fire drill, doesn't it? Huh? I mean, it has all the makings of it. But look what Paul says. Paul says, uh, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets or to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion but of peace. Spirituality and being spiritual, a spiritual church means that confusion and chaos is eliminated. It's eliminated. Because here's what, here's, here, write these two things down too. A spiritual church, number one, a spiritual church demonstrates self-control. There is no contradiction between self-control and letting the Holy Spirit be in control. I mean, we think we've got to get out of control to let God be in control. That's not true. That's not biblical. When you read Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and following, the fruit of the Spirit, one of the, one of the flavors of the fruit of the Spirit is... Self-control. And most charismatics think they've got to be out of control or the God's not in it. But can I say to you that spirituality means demonstrating, exhibiting self-control. If a person doesn't exhibit self-control, mark this down, they are not spiritual. If a church doesn't exhibit self-control, mark this down, that is not a spiritual church. Notice what else a church does that is spiritual. Not only does it demonstrate self-control, but it displays a correct view of God. Katie talked the other day about God and us not taking His name in vain by giving a false image of Him. Listen, when there's pandemonium in a worship service, when there's confusion then that gives a false view of God because, hey, the view that Bonifay has of God, they're going to see it expressed through Grace Church. And here's what's going to happen. If there's confusion and pandemonium in here, they're going to walk away thinking our God is a God of confusion. You know the very first thing God did in Genesis when He started creating? He brought cosmos out of chaos. God has an aversion for chaos and confusion. He just does. Thank God He can bring peace out of confusion. That's what He did in my life. That's what He did in your life when you were saying, you were a hot mess. Did you know that? You were messed up. You were jacked up. You had more problems than you could name. And God took all of your mess that you brought to the cross and He made peace out of your confusion. And that's what he's still doing. So why in the world would a worship service want to look like he's a God that loves chaos and confusion? That's contradictory, friends. It's just contradictory. i got to hurry. i got one more. This is one I'm going to get in trouble on. I just know it. I can feel it already. That's all right. You know, it's like somebody said, I had the right to remain silent but didn't have the ability. <laughs> I just can't do it. If I'd have stopped right there, we'd have been all right. Then here we go. Being spiritual, let me just give you this last one. Being spiritual means we're not driven by emotion. We're not driven by emotion. I said you can't be spiritual until you're first an adult. You can't be spiritual until you've got your emotions under control. Cannot. Now notice what Paul does here because this is some of the most confusing verses in all the New Testament. Look what he says. In the context of all of these prophets prophesying and others evaluating and judging uh, what they said, seeing if it was true or not because they didn't have a New Testament, right? In that light, here's what Paul says. The women are to keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak. Now wait a minute. Wait a minute. Look what Paul said in chapter... Number 12. In chapter, I'm sorry, in chapter number 11. Look what he says. Every man who has something on his head, whatever that means, while praying or prophesying, disgraces God. But every woman 
who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesies, pr- prophesying disgraces, uh, disgraces God. So here in chapter 12 or chapter 11, we looked at this extensively. I'm not going to re- repeat it. God gives the same responsibilities and privileges to men and women. In chapter 12, Paul says it's all right for women to pray and prophesy as long as they have this cultural dimension of having their head covered, right? So can he come now in chapter 14 and say, Oh, I retract that. Women, y'all are to shut up. Y'all are to adopt the philosophy of my daddy, which used to say to us kids, kids are to be seen and not heard. Is Paul doing that? No, he's not. Why? Because he'd be contradicting himself. Mark this down. A truth system philosophically cannot contain contradictions. If it contains contradictions, it disqualifies itself from being truth. And I want to tell you something. I'm not willing to take this and say to women, you are to have no role in public worship services because if you do, if I say that, I'm going to put chapter 14 in direct contradiction with chapter 12 and a good philosopher is going to say, Pastor, the Bible cannot be true. So what do we do here? We've got, we got to interpret this in its contextual neighborhood. And its contextual neighborhood is all these prophets speaking and prophesying and folks judging. Paul's saying, in that confusion, women, y'all be quiet. Now, you know why he's saying that? He's saying that because, look, here's where I'm going to get in trouble. You know that Paul's already built women up extensively in chapter 11 and 12. He's already said, basically, y'all are the fairer sex. That's what he says. But here's what he's he's saying in chapter 14. Ladies, y'all don't get involved in these high, intense theological discussions, and here's why he's saying it. Because generally speaking, the ladies are the, are the more emotional gender. Am I right? Is Heather more emotional than me? You better believe it. Jamie, is Alicia more emotional than you? Yeah, you, yeah you're not going to answer. Take the fifth. Take the fifth. That was wise. But I think I got affirmation from every man. Look, that's not a bad thing. I'm not saying being emotional is bad, ladies. I'm just saying it's the stated truth. Am I right? So Paul is saying, in this context, we want to eliminate emotion. And we want to promote ration and reason. Now, that's not just, that's not just applied to women. Because I will tell you something. I know a lot of men who are very much in touch with their feminine side. And they're emotional. You cannot have this discussion with a charismatic believer who believes that speaking in tongues is the ultimate gift and who believes that you can be saved today and lost tomorrow. You can't have a rational discussion with them. Let me tell you what it's going to degenerate to. It's going to degenerate to a red-faced, name-calling, shouting match. Anybody experience that? One of, our, one of our leaders called me not long ago and said, man, you've got to help me. He said, my boss just leveled me. He said, he became red-faced, spitting mad, angry, hollering at me because we believe that if you are saved by God's grace, you are always saved by God's grace. That's what I mean by emotion. Let me go one step farther. There may be some of them out there, but I have never met a charismatic who was grounded in God's Word. You know why? Because all they care about is the feeling and the emotion and the experience. And Paul says, we've got to remove emotion from that context. Here's what one of my professors taught me years ago. He said, don't you ever try to do theology from an emotional platform. Theology is only done from a biblical basis. So it doesn't matter what you feel. It doesn't matter what you like. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter if it makes you happy or sad. The only thing that matters is, what does God's Word say? Now look at here. Ladies, you know that I'm your champion. If that wasn't the case, you'd be, you'd be deprived of hearing Katie teach Sunday school. You'd be deprived of hearing Kaylin and Savannah and, and Elissa 
and Sandy and all these other ladies sing. Because if you've got to be quiet, you've got, you got to be quiet all the time, right? You'd be deprived of hearing, of, of hearing um, um, uh, Hannah. Is that right? Do our announcements. Where is she? Haley. Yeah. You'd be deprived of all of that. How much poorer would we be if we didn't have that at Grace Church? So we've got to contextualize this. And Paul's saying a spiritual person is somebody who has their emotions under control. We'll never grow up. We'll never be mature until we can handle our emotions in a biblical perspective. I don't, th- th- there's no such thing as being spiritually mature and being emotionally immature. Can't do it. We've got to have them together. Hey, what does it mean to be spiritual? Guys, I hope I've painted a picture for you. I hope I hadn't offended you. But you draw your conclusions about what God's saying, and you'll know why now when somebody comes to Grace Church and they try to pull Pastor Richie down this extra-canonical path of non-biblical revelation, you'll know why he says, Hey, let me recommend another church for you because we ain't going there. God bless you. Would you stand with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that it holds the answer and the solution for every situation that we face in life. So God, would you help us be good stewards, not just hearers, but doers of the word? Would you help us be a mature church that's grounded in thus saith the Lord? God, would you move us down this path of being adults, being big boys and girls, being emotionally stable, and being spiritually grown up, seeking the edification of other people. Lord, I pray for those who are here today that you are calling, because that's what you do in a spiritual church. You call people. So I thank you for those whom you're calling, whether it be a calling to a step of faith as it relates to the Great Commission, whether it is to surrender their life to Christ, or whether it's to become a part of Grace Church, whatever you're calling to, God, May today we demonstrate spiritual maturity by saying yes and by taking a step of obedience right now. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Colin Dollar's on the front row. Brother Cliff Myers is going to be up here as well. If God spoke